0: Music. Music. Hello, everyone. This music, is Heath music. with the Music Technology music. Teacher Network. www.mutechteachernet.com. Www. Techno- Welcome to the podcast, Mutech Tec- 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 Tech Tec- Tec- Teacher Tec- Talk. Tec- Tec- Talk. I begin most of my podcast by saying how excited I am about the guests I'm about to introduce. I'm sure that sounds sort of rote and insincere, but I'm honestly excited to be talking to these people. You know, as the saying goes, you won't know if you don't ask. And the people that I asked to be on the pod are incredibly successful in their careers. I don't always get a reply when I reach out to someone to be on the pod, but most of them have agreed, yet I'm always a little surprised when they say yes. So I'm being totally sincere when I say that I'm excited to talk to them because I am. I'm excited that they're willing to take time out of their busy schedules. I'm excited that they're willing to share their experiences and their expertise with me and with you, the listeners. And it excites me to be able to share this content with you. Advocate, support, inspire, create. That's the tagline for the Music Technology Teacher Network and it sums up the purpose for everything we do. And this podcast is an important part of achieving our mission and vision. So, without any further ado, I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, Chris Rickwood. Chris is a versatile and dynamic composer with a flair for creating musical scores that capture the essence of video game worlds. With a career spanning over two decades, Chris has honed his craft to create immersive soundscapes that are as diverse as they are memorable. Having composed for a wide range of titles, from the epic battles of Smite, Paladins, and Tribes of Sin, to the whimsical landscapes of Brawlhalla, Jetpack Fighter, and Adventure Time Battle Party, Chris is no stranger to the challenges of game scoring. His past work also includes Madden NFL 12, Orcs Must Die the series, Ghostbusters, the video game, and Age of Empires Online, just to name a few. Chris is passionate about sharing his knowledge and expertise with aspiring composers and regularly lectures at prestigious institutions like the Game Developers Conference, the Savannah College of Art and Design, University of Georgia, Kennesaw State University, Clemson University, the Art Institute of Atlanta, SAE Atlanta, and Siege. Chris has contributed his expertise to the game audio community as a founding member of the Game Developers Association of Georgia and by serving on the advisory board for the Game Audio Network Guild and the Board of Governors for the National Association of Recording Arts and Sciences. So sit back and I hope you enjoy this conversation that I have today with Chris Rickwood. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so let's start off, as I've told the listeners, that, you know, you are a music composer, primarily with video games, but I usually like to start these podcasts off by just getting a little bit of background. So as
1: a kid, how did you first become interested in music? Um, As a kid, I guess I was, uh, like maybe most kids, uh, I started in band, actually. So what was that? Well, I guess, you know, going back to elementary school, you know, we had like choir and stuff for that. So I was in that. And from there, you know, you go on to like middle school band. So in in sixth grade, I joined the middle school band, I actually played trumpet. And from there, just uh, continued, uh, you know, I found my people there. So it was kind of, that was my group. And, you know, I continued on into high school and into college and even into grad school. So yeah, it was for me, music, actually like playing music started with, you know, band and uh playing trumpet.
0: In that band experience you really focused on really performing and learning how to play your instrument. At what point in time did you become interested in actually composing music?
1: Yeah so I grew up in Texas in San Antonio actually and there while I was there I was you know I played trumpet but I would, my my best friend played drums or percussion he's like on the snare line so I for the solo and ensemble contest, I decided to do, I don't know, even know what, why this happened, but I decided to write a piece for percussion quartet. So it was like a snare drum, quads, a bass drum, and cymbals. And it was really like a, a ripoff of a solo piece, like a solo percussion piece. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, I'm too old now. But it, it was clearly like the snare part was just this... this standard solo like that they played at solo and ensemble and I, you know, wrote three other parts for it as an ensemble. And, uh, you know, we played it for solo and ensemble contest in Texas. If you get a superior at solo and ensemble, you'd then get to a state competition, which happens at UT Austin and you're in a big auditorium and you play for another bunch of judges. And then, uh, so it's kind of a cool little trip. So we got a superior locally and then went to Austin and um you know got a superior there and on the score you know one of the judges wrote you know great job with the chart chris and it was just a like an interesting bit of like positive reinforcement i guess like accolade that you know other kids weren't getting you know it's like oh like this is a thing people write music and it's it seems easier (laughs) than like performing because in you know in texas as well you know it's a huge state so there's you know Thousand marching bands like a huge thing, you know, football and all that kind of stuff. So like, there's a lot of musicians and a lot of competition. So to stand out, you know, it's pretty tough. Like to get to you know the state level. So going to the state level and composition was just a just a you know an interesting thing for me. Where I was like, oh, I can write music. I don't have to perform it. I was okay, you know, at trumpet, but you know this was something that nobody else was doing, and you know I was getting a little bit of you know attention for it. So that's that was the inkling of like, oh, this is. This seems cooler. So as you came
0: out of high school then and you went to college, did you go right into a composition degree or where did you start off with that?
1: I'm not sure when I actually made the decision to become a like composer, but I did go to college. So I went to Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, and I got a bachelor's degree in theory because they didn't have composition there. But I knew going into college that I wanted to be a composer, like a film composer, like most people, right? So, you know, in high school, like the obviously John Williams was a big influence, and I remember like Danny Elfman, like the the original Batman, and when that score came out, that one really was kind of a eye opener for me, just because it was somewhat poppy, you know, as well as, but it's easier to listen to than you know most classical music. So it kind of hit me in a, a different way. Like I could hear, I could understand it a little easier, you know, with my unsophisticated musical ear at the time. So coming out of that from high school, I knew like, oh, I want to, I think I want to be a film composer. Had no idea how to do it. The only way I knew how to do it was like go to school. So I went to Furman and got a theory degree. I did end up going to to North Texas for my master's degree in composition to, you know, continue those studies. That was more of a like now i have a bachelor's in theory not much you can do with that degree besides continue school and maybe get a doctorate and still had no real clue of how to you know break into the film industry you know this is pre-internet right this is in the 90s so like there was like one book on the topic i think it was called on the tracks of you know how to become a film school and it all seemed very hard right like you had to go to la and you had to. Be able to write for the orchestra on the spot during a session, and be you know the super high skilled composer, and you know so I've, school was kind of the way to like procrastinate in order to get that job and kind of learn on learn while I was doing it. But it was definitely like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to school till I till I figure this out.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that Danny Elfman score for the Batman movie because as soon as you said it, it's playing in my head. And it, <laughs> it, and it was, you know, at the time, you know, the movie was really popular, but, you know, the mm-hmm. soundtrack was a huge part of that. And the thing about Danny Elfman, maybe even before that, I think so much film music was really dominated by the great John Williams and, you know, the scores that he had written for, you know, Indiana Jones and the Star Wars films and, you when Danny Elfman came along with that Batman series, it was it was very you know cinematic, but it was a really different sound than John Williams uh, yeah. had heard before. So so yeah, that, yeah, I remember that very vividly. So were you always a big film score fan? Because you know even as a band kid, I, I can remember paying more attention to the film music than maybe some of my other friends.
1: Um, I don't actually know. I remember those films. Uh, you know, Jerry Goldsmith being another. A huge one during the time of Williams and, you know, Elfman. But I could remember certain films for their music, Back to the Future, obviously, you know, all the Williams stuff. But I don't know if I was distracted by it like I am now, where I'll, you know, watch a movie and like all I can think about is like, oh, the score is amazing. And, you know, how did they do this? And what made them, you know, it was more of, um, you know, something that almost seemed unattainable, which I think a lot of music back then in order to produce music was unattainable, even to be like, you know, the 80s pop music was so larger than life. You know, the film world to me was larger than life. Even the orchestra was, you know, I hadn't really seen an orchestra live you know, as a kid. So all that stuff seemed just bigger, right? And like another world. And I think that was appealing to me. It was like, oh, this is, you know, I'm in my little life here, but there's so much of this universe that seems interesting and unattainable. And, you know, that's like my mind would kind of reel over that. So I think that was the interest. It wasn't necessarily like it was film music and I now I'm going to do film music, but I do feel like, it was accessible enough to where it pinged my like '80s pop ear. I was like, oh, this makes sense to me more than Stravinsky at the time, or you know, Penderesky or something. So, th- I think that's that was my draw to it. Less about like, oh, like I understand the storytelling of it. It was more of like, I understood it in a in it, but it still seemed unreachable.
0: You know, we talk about the early '90s and Pro Tools is just. Mm-hmm. starting to become a thing. We're still, I'm trying to remember the exact date. I, I think we're still, I think it was 1999. "Living La Vida Loca was the first song that was ever produced totally in Pro Tools that reached number one on the charts. Yeah. So, you know, Pro Tools really isn't a, a big thing yet. And certainly not the kind of sound samples and sound packs you can get today that emulate the sound of an orchestra or emulate the sound Uh, of a trumpet at at that time, you know, in the early nineties, it was pretty comical. Anytime you were trying to hear an electronically or digitally generated sound of an orchestra. So, you know, unless you had the LA symphony sitting at your disposal, you know, it really was unattainable to have access to that kind of stuff. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah.
0: I think you and I are close to about the same age, and I had a neighbor that had Pong, the very first, <laughs> like, video game, right? So, yeah. uh, and uh, and then, you know, later, you know, I got that first Atari console that came yeah. with, like, you know, all of them came with the the combat game and the cultural environment of the day. I remember there was a song called Pac-Man Fever that, <laughs> uh, you know, reached, like, number one on the, yeah. on the chart. So during that time, along with, like, the music, were you also kind of – into the video game side of things too.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I I'll go back even. Well, I do remember Pong and somebody having it, or at least some kind of clone where it was just you know the little blip the vector graphics thing. And we actually had an Atari 2600. And friends had Coleco's. And but even like the culture back then was huge. Like the arcades were the big thing, right? So you'd go to the movies on a Friday night. And in movie theaters, the whole front half of the movie theater was an arcade of probably, like, 30 to 50 games. So the arcade was almost a destination more than the movies were, you know. So I was always playing in arcades, playing in gas stations, playing, you know, the big arcade games, even before we had a Atari. Hearing the name Combat, like, gives me, like, that triggers me because my brother would always <laughs> own me on Combat. and It was so frustrating how bad I was and how good he was at it. I just wanted to play like the airplane game, but do like do formation flying instead of like trying to fight each other. It was pretty weird. But yeah, so games were always in my life. And also when I was in third grade, I was in like the the gifted talented program and they had a computer in there. It was a Commodore PET and they taught us how to program it. So I was, you know, doing code like computer code, like at a pretty young age. Okay. and That was mind-boggling to me, too. I actually wrote, like, uh, the Texas Instruments, wrote them and said, hey, I'm interested in computers. And, you know, they sent me all their catalogs and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, I don't even know what these are, but they look amazing. And uh, so, like, technology and computers and games, as well as music, were all, like, pretty important to me in my, you know, in the, my youth. So... So
0: you go, you've gone to college and, and I'm a Paladin fan, by the way, uh, (laughs) just, uh, just for trivia, I I grew up in Anderson County, about 45 miles down the road from from Furman used to, uh, take lessons with Dan Ellis, who was, oh, wow. The low brass. Oh, professor. I know Dan. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. He
1: was there when I was there. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, that's a great connection. But so, you know, as you go through college, you're thinking, I'm a composer. You know, I'm really interested in film scoring. But as we get here to today, most of your work has been in this video game area. So, as you were coming to the end of college and you're like, okay, what am I going to do? How did that mm-hmm. process? begin to work that kind of led you into this video game side of composition?
1: Yeah, I was at grad school and I, I read an article in electronic musician. It was a magazine back in the day. Magazines are these things that (laughs) they're on paper. (laughs) (laughs) So there was this article about the old LucasArts games. Uh, I say old at the time they were new. Uh, So this is mid nineties, like 95, 96. So it's talking about LucasArts, and how they were doing interactive music. And there's these were games like Grim Fandango and um, Secret of Monkey Island, these these adventure games that were, you know, almost like cartoons. I don't know if you know the games, but they're kind of they're animated, cartoony style, like you would, and you'd point and click and, you know, try to figure out this the story behind it. But it had interactive music, and I was reading this article about it, and at the end of the article, they said, these companies are looking for composers, and they had the addresses of like EA and uh Virgin Games and Sega, I think, like saying, you know, send your demos here. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm gonna send my demo. So I sent a demo of on cassette tape of my music playing through my computer. It was very, very poor production, right? So it's basically me going out of cakewalk, playing my, you know, Roland sound card, and I'm I'm recording it on tape. And I also sent them a a disk drive of the MIDI files, because, you know, the technology there was basically playing MIDI files through the Roland sound canvas. So that was my first light bulb of like, oh, this seems way more interesting. Like, nobody's doing this. These people ask for demos. I'm super into games. I don't really want to, you know, do the Hollywood thing and, and try to navigate that. And there's something a little more cutting edge about this, right? Like, nobody was, there was very little information on it. So it felt like I was coming in on the ground floor, which I feel like I was pretty much. So yeah, my my idea was to take over the game industry. Because one thing about those games, if you've ever played them, is that they sound very bad because they're coming out of your computer, right? It's just, you know, computer making it, or if you had a sound card, it would maybe play like general MIDI sounds. So my goal was like, oh, I'm going to introduce the video game industry to real orchestral music or real sounding music, which I was naive to the fact that technology wouldn't allow that, but I... You know, it wasn't like they weren't trying and didn't know how to do it. It was, oh, the technology isn't there yet to support actual WAV files or or any kind of real-time playback. So I think that naive mind of mine was to my benefit because I went full force into, like, oh, this is what I'm going to do and just focused from then, then on to breaking into the game industry.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I've, you know, people might not realize or understand, like when we think about those early video games, you know, even like the first Mario Brothers, if you listen to those, it's really all melody. It's not mm-hmm. harmony because, you know, with that 8-bit sound, yeah. it, could, it could really only generate one tone at a time.
1: Right. Yeah. And you had to do tricks, you know, the, the going to like the Nintendo, you know, had maybe four voices. So you could do like a sine wave, square wave, and then some noise, right? So you have the noise during the percussion, but they're basically three voices doing everything else. So You'd have a melody and a bass line, and then you'd have another voice doing arpeggio, so doing the chord progression. So yeah, it was very very tight composition uh, because of the limitations, and that's something we miss nowadays, where we can just slap on you know 200 tracks and call it a day. But yeah, they had to be good and efficient back in the day.
0: Yeah, and that's a, I would think, a pretty unique challenge for that particular medium to have to do that for video games. But it's really in the last 15, 20 years where soundtracks for video games, well, I call them soundtracks because a lot of video games today are essentially like interactive movies, right? Mm -hmm. They, you know, there's a story, there's a plot. And the scores for these video games are symphonic to the point that it's not unusual at all to, to go to the Atlanta Symphony or London Symphony or wherever. And on their subscription season, they'll have one concert maybe that features symphonic music from video games like yeah. Zelda or Kingdom Hearts or, you know, how did that evolution happen from when you started to kind of where you are now?
1: it's actually, you know, still fairly new. Yeah. Back way, way back. Like that was unheard of, at least in the United States, right? In Japan, it was a normal thing. Like video game composers there were like rock stars or still are. So the access to that music was kind of part of the culture, but in the States, yeah. Like even you put the the entertainment mediums into order of like, you know, high class to low class, you know, you'd have like film, television, ads, and then like games would be like at the bottom, right? Like, oh, I don't know where it would be, but it was definitely like the bastard child of the entertainment industry. So we didn't get that. And it took a lot of convincing for city orchestras like Atlanta Symphony to even consider playing that stuff because it was, it was still, you know, an unknown medium. I will say it was maybe, well, I know there were two things. So there was video games live, which was a touring company that would go around and play video game music. And they'd go town to town. And I think that really helped open the doors to the American market for video game concerts because they were very successful. They would play scores from all over the years, probably two hours of things from like Mario Brothers all the way to like Halo and the newer games. So it was a nice kind of suite of very, very well. Done music, and then they would have you know the composers there, you know, signing autographs and stuff, so you can meet and greet. So was, that definitely kind of broke open the doors. And the other thing is, the oh, the Japanese composers would have concerts here and they would do Final Fantasy concerts, was probably the first one. And that again opened the doors of like, oh, this is like serious symphony, this is sophisticated writing, and the orchestras enjoy playing it. And you know, it brought an audience like, like huge audiences and young audiences, right? So it was a different demographic. And, you know, once you start filling seats, then you start being taken seriously. It's like, oh, this kid draw crowds, this is good for us, you know? So now I think it's 20 years later, it's finally kind of a norm. But yeah, there was some trepidation on promoters or whoever the the orchestral directors for to want to do it, because it wasn't taken seriously.
0: Sure. And you sort of touched on this earlier, but as you go to school and are learning about composition, so, you know, maybe there's a course you take on film scoring or something, but and maybe there are some today, but certainly mm-hmm. at the time, I'm sure there weren't any classes about how to write music for for video games. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, how is composing music for a video game different than how you would go about writing a score for a movie or if you were just writing a piece of music?
1: Yeah, it's almost not any different now to write a piece of music for a video game than to destroy a movie. And that's why I think a lot of non-video game people are getting into it. I mean, besides the money part, but it's not like you really have to know how to do it anymore because it's the same process. You're writing a good piece of music. Maybe it needs to loop, but sometimes it doesn't. Like Both like the production skills and the music editing skills that are available now they could do magic, like I've heard, like music editors take a piece that doesn't loop, and doesn't seem interactive, chop it up, and like throw it in the game. It's like, oh, this is like, a, this works amazingly well. How did we do this? So it's a little less of a thing now, you know. But back in the day, it was, you know, there were technical limitations. Sometimes you'd have to write, like if you were doing like a a Nintendo DS game, you know, you'd have to fit that thing into like 17 megabytes of memory those limitations are pretty much over now. You know, you can, computers can handle anything, like real-time tracks, even multi-tracks. You know, you can have six stems running in sequence and being able to fade in and out of them. So honestly, there's, like, nowadays, it's like just write good music and (laughs) somebody will take care of the interactive part. You know, there, there are things like having to write transitions and maybe making them loopable, and there's some finesse to that. I would say the hardest thing about, Writing game music is writing things that sustain an emotion, you know, like in, in film, right? So you have a timeline of like, we're happy here. And by the end of it, there's, you know, some kind of resolution. So that has to resolve in a game. It's like, well, this is, this needs to be intense for probably like five minutes. Can you write a piece that keeps the same intensity for five minutes that doesn't repeat and can loop and still, you know, not get annoying, you know, so there's, a little bit of, I think to me, that's the challenge is how can I hit an emotion and sustain that emotion for an undetermined amount of time? But besides that, no, I think anybody can write video games
0: nowadays. So what is that process like when someone comes to you and they've got an idea for a new game? Are you, is that conversation more about what you were just saying, like the emotion or the action or how often are they actually presenting you with like maybe a storyboard where there's mm-hmm. images based on what you're writing? Uh how does how does that process usually just start with a new game?
1: Um it, I mean, obviously it's different from game to game and even like size of game from you know like Candy Crush on the phone to your last of us, right? So there's there's a big spectrum of how things will start out. For me, at a minimum, I, I like to play the game. So there's gonna be some kind of playable. And it's never finished, right? It's always just like block characters maybe running around and there's very minimal amount of things to do. But you do get a sense of the pacing and how fast things are going, how quickly stories unfold or how quick is the action, how fast is the character moving you know, is there action all the time or is like you think a little bit and then you take action and then you think a little more, you know, there's that kind of thing that really only playing the game can kind of tell you. And then you're given, you know, concept art and just having discussions with all the directors, art directors, creative directors, executive, like whoever it is that has any kind of stake in the game, even IP holders. If it's, you know, uh, like a Star Wars game, you would talk to, or Disney and Lucas and talk about, you know, what does star Wars music sound like and what to do. So at a minimum, it's a conversation at its best. You can see the final game and play it, but there's all those levels in between, of, you know what happens.
0: Sure. So are there any other aspects of the sound design for a video game, whether it's like special effects or character sounds, voiceovers, are you involved with any of those other sound elements when it comes to a game?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I did for a while do, you know, I've done it all. So I've done sound design, I've done voice direction, I've done audio direction, done a little bit of programming. Basically anything that has to do with audio in a game I've done. I have a company called Team Audio that does everything. So i mainly now just focus on music. But we do everything from, like I said, audio direction down to programming, what's called technical sound design, which is putting sounds into the game and making sure they work. So yeah, it's, my skills go pretty deep into, I've even like made games, like coded games. And so it's, for me, like the whole process is interesting.
0: Sure. And I had, have a former student that does work in video game music design. And I was talking to him one time and it was really interesting because, you know, he was talking about the idea where if you're writing for, or even doing the sound for say a movie, it's all linear, right? You press play at the beginning and it runs from beginning to end, it stops. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, in game design, a lot of times you're trying to actually create an environment where mm-hmm. sounds happen and depending on the perspective of the player and you know the objects in the game the you might design the sound for a laser pistol but yeah. but that laser that that sound might be coming from behind a building or it might mm-hmm. be coming from right in front of you what kind of consultation kind of has to go on between that process and the folks that are coding because. Yeah. He was saying sometimes we'll have to work with the coders and they're like, yeah, that's really cool. But we, yeah, we can't do that. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, so if you run into those kind of conversations where there's, you know, there's give and take between all the different elements of the game, right?
1: Yeah. That's a, that's what's good about being able to do it all is you can have this conversation with, with, with programmers. And that's a soft skill you kind of need to have to be able to, to speak their language a little bit and, Whenever I want something, I really want something from a programmer, I kind of dare them. I said, I don't think you can do this. Like, I want, when a bullet shot, I want it to, like, the whiz by to happen, like, in real time, and the whiz is by, in space by their ears. I don't know if you can do that. Can you? And that kind of challenges their... A little reverse psychology, little bit, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, that's some, um, again, what I find more interesting about video games than than any other medium is you're, you're intersecting, you know, these super smart programmers and engineers, basically like, like physics masters, because they have to, you know, calculus and, and physics in a three D world is, you know, very relevant and being able to do that, that math in real time. That's the challenge. And, and then producing sounds. And it's even more exaggerated in VR. You know, when you have a goggles on and you're putting a glass down it's so realistic that you could tell if the sound isn't placed in the right place and doesn't sound correct, you know, with that distance in mind, it completely blows the illusion. So the being able to both create sounds and a multitude of sounds, right? There's not just one cup drop sound. There's like, you know, 50 different sounds that would go into that, you know, placement, that impact being able to create that and also, you know, both communicate to the programmer, you know, what you're looking for, system design, all that kind of stuff. That's yeah, that's a whole another skill that I'm not I yeah, know you don't do in, in, in the film industry. And that's to me why, why it's exciting.
0: Sure. And one term that's out there that people may or may not be familiar with is something called midware, where mm-hmm. in the video game industry that's it's sort of like this bridge between the music and the sound people and the actual people that know the nuts and bolts of all the the programming and that sort of thing. And a lot of those midware software things are available and learnable mm-hmm. by people that are out there and interested in this kind of thing. Are there any particular midware platforms that you've worked with, with sound and video?
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, we, we actually call it middleware. There's, there's two major players. One is wise and it's spelled W W I S E. It's like, Waveworks interactive sound engine, I believe is that what that stands for? And then there's Fmod. Both of those, yeah, they're just layers in between that lay on top of the game. So the game's calling those engine, like those calls to the engine to the middleware engine to play your sound. So you, for instance, as a audio designer, can go into like WISE, take your like five footstep sounds and put them in into WISE. And then say, when you want to play these footstep sounds, you know, randomize between these five steps. And all you have to do is call this event called footstep. And then the programmer can just say, okay, I'm going to call this footstep. So that's kind of the basic reason for it is like it separates the audio authoring from all the other authoring. So it allows people to work at the same time. And it also makes it easier for audio people to produce stuff without having to play the game. So we can go in there and kind of mock up like, oh, here's um, five footsteps. And then we can randomize it so we can test and make sure that sounds correct if, while it's randomizing. Oh, it's like, oh, no, this one, it's number four there plays a little louder than the others. Let's pull that down or or take it out completely. And we can also set up what are called switches and say, like, okay, these are our footsteps for concrete, and these are for sand. These are for water. These are for, you know, grass or whatever, you know, snow. So now we have this switch that can say, okay, if I'm, Landing in snow, play these sets of footsteps. If I'm on water, play these five. And you know, there's this whole like tree of sounds, but all the programmer has to do is send in a little switch that says, "We are playing footsteps, and it is in water," and then it calls that engine. So the you know the advantage is we can we can mock all that up and hear that it's working correctly before the programmer even has to make the call, and then we can just tell them the two little parameters to adjust to make that all happen. So it makes it quick and Easy.
0: You know, I know, I mentioned before, a lot of video games these days are interactive movies. And a lot of them now, too, it's kind of like if you reach the end of the story, it's kind of the end of the movie. You get the end credits, right? Mm-hmm. And if you take the time to, to look at that, you begin to get a sense of... Just the the number of people that go into creating a game like this, from visual designers and the music composers and sound designers and people that are doing the gameplay, and it's mind-boggling to me. How many people or teams do typically have to work together to get to that final product?
1: Uh, How many teams? How many people? Or. I mean, there's a, a dumb amount. <laughs> it, it depends on, you know, again, like how big it is. But yeah, you look at modern, let's say, AAA games like your Call of Duties, your your Halos, your Destinies, that kind of thing. It's it's immense because you're there's so many. like think about it. Like if you're you're basically building a world that doesn't exist, right? So, and your map size is. Like the Last of Us was the size of the United States. I mean, it wasn't really like in real time, but four or five locations you're traveling from one end of the United States to the other, right? So there's there's that, and then think about in this world, and then like I go into like this cave, and I can explore this cave, and this cave is as long as a normal cave, right? So just like environment design alone is mind-boggling if you try to think about it, like how big these games are. Somebody had to like create that map drop all these props into that map, sound designer how to go in, draw reverb volume around that it says when I go into this cave, make it sound like a cave, drop little sounds that, you know, like the ambient sound, little water drips, bat sounds, whatever animals, you know, we had to, somebody had to light it, somebody had to, you know, do the textures even, like it's not just, it's not painted, you have to like draw like here's the ground, here's a little, textures for that. And now i got to propagate that all along the ground and along the walls. And that's just a little cave in this United States size map. Right? So that alone takes thousands of man hours just to get the environment done. And then you talk about gameplay and sound and music and all that. It can get, like I said, stupid size. Like it just, you know, the, the amount of people it takes to do these specialty jobs is incredible. It's why a lot of them were canceled. <laughs> it's because they run out of money. It's like, you can't afford to pay this. You know, our burn rate is hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. Like, you know, we're and we're still three years out from this being released. So
0: yeah, yeah. I've seen reports and statistics when you compare like some of these big game releases that you talked about you mentioned some of them like you know the halos and the call of duties and that stuff that it absolutely compares to the biggest movie releases out there you know a new you know one of the things that's really popular with with movies is you know how much money did this movie bring in the first weekend but when you compare those to initial releases of the next halo game or the next Mm I mean, those, when we talk about just generating revenue, they're comparable to, you know, these big, big budget films.
1: Yeah. It's, um, I I would say it's almost, uh, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble with film people. It's almost more work because you're, you are literally starting with z- like zero. Like you're, when you're making a game, it's like we have a computer screen that's empty. There's a little gray box on there. Now we have to create a world. We also do have to hire actors and hire they do full mocap sessions with voiceover and then we have to hire all the, the, the orchestra and we're going to air studios or, you know, Abbey road and recording all this. So, so the budgets to create games are pretty comparable both, even though it is mostly virtual, you know, we're still hiring actors, we're hiring sound designers, we're hiring, you know, musicians as well as like computer professionals and IT staffs. And so, yeah, the, the amount of labor that goes into, you know, making not something from literally one gray box. It's staggering to think about. Yeah.
0: I want to make sure we have some time to talk about this. In Georgia, a lot of people know about the film and television industry and and how big that's become. But Georgia and Atlanta has also become known as a real center for digital technology and entrepreneurship and from all kinds of different technological or or, or digital tools and apps and things. So one of the groups here in Georgia is the Georgia Game Developers Association, which I know you played a part in establishing that group. Tell me about that. What does the Georgia Game Developers Association do?
1: Uh so yeah, they're a whoo, maybe I should have thought about this because I don't want to say it wrong, but they're basically a great industry trade organization that represents the Georgia game industry. So in layman's terms, really is like their group of game developers started back uh wow, two thousand, you know, there was a tiny handful of us. I was one, Clinton Lowe was one who's kind of moved on, uh Andrew Greenberg, Chris Klaus. Kevin Gorman who no longer lives here either. We all like had these meetings like we would go to these, you know, meetups and eventually said, you know, we need somebody to advocate for the fledgling game industry because it wasn't there wasn't really much here, you know, a handful of of small indie developers. So the point of that was to actually, you know, advocate and grow the game industry. So what it does practically is there's you know a membership that will have you know monthly or bi-monthly meetings of you know at different game studios on different topics. People come in and speak. There, there's also what what's called Siege, which they put on. It's a big game industry development expo. It's a conference where they'll bring in uh, speakers from all over the world to talk about different topics of gaming, such as like art and music, sound, gameplay, all this kind of stuff. And then there's the other part, which is they advocate to the government about how money is spent in Georgia and how to best attract companies to Georgia. So yeah, it works on many levels of just advocating for the game industry, trying to grow it, trying to grow indie game developers up down to, you know, the biggest developers here. I will say, you know, that education is a big part of why the Georgia game developers exist. So it's You know, we've always had this mindset of both promoting the studios, but also, you know, the the students around here. There's schools here that Georgia Tech uses for Georgia, uh, Kennesaw, SCAD, Art Institute. You know, all these schools are here producing artists and programmers and game designers and whatever it is that have these skills. So, Yeah, the GGDA has always been, you know, at Siege, we have one full day that's just for the bus in high schools to come and talk about, you know, the different jobs you can get. There'll be college recruiters there and game recruiters. So it's, yeah, that's a big part of the GGDA's program is to advocate for training and, and education and video games.
0: Does the Game Developers Association, is there a website? Do they have resources that are available for anyone who might be interested in getting more information about that?
1: Yeah, there's uh, the GGDA, or, it's www.ggda.org.
0: And I'll make sure, we'll put a link to that in the program notes if uh, people want to get to see that.
1: Yeah, that I mean, I the most important thing you can do if you're looking to break into this industry is, one, become involved in that with the GGDA and volunteer your time to them and go to the events because they do put put on there's one i want to say it's called cim which is the columbus interactive media festival i think that's happening pretty soon uh, and that happens down in in columbus yeah june 17th and then they we do siege every year so there's you know chances and also the you know monthly events if those are happening all this stuff happened like got blown up with COVID, obviously but i th- believe we have chapters in Atlanta, Athens, Augusta, and Columbus. And, you know, getting involved in one of those chapters and actually going to meetings and meeting people and going to, like, CIM or to Siege is the best way for you to get to know people in this industry, at least locally, so.
0: Yeah. So I know we've talked a good bit about, you know, kind of specifics with, you know, music and sound, but, you know, just kind of wrap this up, what are what are some of the skills in your experience and you've been in this industry for quite a, a long time? You know, what are some of those other skills that are really important for people to think about and in addition to, you know, like you said, just networking and getting involved in the in the associations out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the number one thing in the video game industry, maybe in any industry, is to be able to communicate and talk to people like I said I know how to do almost anything in in the video game world like how to create a game and that was both because I was interested in how to make it but also to be able to communicate more effectively with different departments so even though you may be like a sound designer or you know voiceover artist or you know composer or whatever it is it's a collaborative medium you know you're You know, we talked about how many people does it take to make a video game? A lot, a lot more than you. I mean, you could do it on your own, but uh, if if you want to really work in this industry, you're going to have to ask for help and be able to communicate both your thoughts of, you know, how things should be and also be receptive to other people's ideas and how do you together make a better product at the end of the day. So number one is definitely communication. I guess, like, for me and definitely my company at Team Audio – when we're looking for people, we are looking for people that are curious. I think the word passion gets thrown around a lot. And that's, I think that's half of it. I think you can be passionate, but if you're not curious about things and want to learn about things, both about your craft and how to improve that, but also about other people's crafts and how to improve that, or even like about the world, like, you know, what, everything that you learn and see and do and experience, you know, affects your art and your, your work. So be curious about, you know, things outside, like I could see outside my window, you know, this trees, it's like, what kind of trees are these? How do these trees work? What is, what's the purpose of these trees? There's birds in them. What kind of bird is that? What kind of bird sound does that make? Oh, that's an interesting bird song. Oh, I'm going to write a piece of that. You know, all this, all these inputs, you know, have an effect on your ability to create, you know, your, absorbing information and then regurgitating that information in your own voice. So just to me, like being able to like, or having the curiosity to just know more about everything to me is number two on the list of uh, how to be successful in the game industry.
0: Well, we're getting near the the end of the time that we have and I like to end most of these podcasts with a, a couple of standard questions I have for all okay. the guests. Yeah. So and so the first question I always call the the crystal ball mm-hmm. question. So if you could look into your crystal ball and see what you think lies ahead for this industry in general or in, you know, here in Georgia specifically, what do you yeah. think the future holds for music composition and sound mm-hmm. and, and game design?
1: Well, I mean, we're at an interesting crossroads, aren't we, with with AI. So I think, I mean, that's for sure going to have an effect on a lot of things. Games, especially, like, you know, it's all computer-based. So there's already AI out there that can create just about anything that's in a game, like the art, the music, even the programming. Like, that's almost the easiest thing is, like, write me this code to make this character walk across screen so i i have no crystal ball on what that will look like in 5 years but it will definitely be a this is a interesting time in history because i think this to me is much like the creation of pro tools it's going to change the industry and it's going to it's going to change how we do work why we do work what work we do you know as a composer it's interesting to think about you know, I've always been interested in AI and I've I've even written some myself that writes music, like procedural music and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not as scared about it as other people because I, I still feel like there's, you know, there's that humanity part of music that you can't replace. Like I can hear a piece of music, but then when I, you know, hear like Annie Lennox sing a piece of music, you know, it's like that's a different experience, you know, so I don't think we'll lose that. So it's almost like the lower barrier of entry to music, you know, will, or maybe it'll go up. How am I trying to say this? Like there are all the stuff that's easy to write, like, you know, your wallpaper, maybe production music that will now be an AI's job. And then it'll only be like, you know, serious, or maybe not serious, but, you know, take it to the next level. I think it almost will go the opposite way where it'll be such a highly desirable skill to get like handcrafted music versus AI music, you know, it could go that way to where that will be more of a premium. It's like, oh, this was written by a human and by this artist or, you know, whatever it is. So, so Christopher, I don't know, Uh, but I think we're, we're at a turning point that could, that's already seeing, you know, some dramatic changes in the industry that's scaring people, but also exciting people. Uh, So it's just a matter of how, if we use it for good or evil, is how that's going to go.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right on. It's it's funny. I, while you were talking about that, I was remembering like it was the mid, maybe the mid '80s when Apple came out with this. I think it was it it debuted like at a Super Bowl with this Apple commercial that was you know the the backdrop was kind of like the scene out of Orwell's 1984. And oh, this yeah. person, person, you know, yeah, yeah. It comes running through the middle of everything and you know just like blows up the whole thing and it everyone was like what's coming and uh, yeah. but yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, there used to be commercials about, you know, the information super highway. And we were going, what is that? And mm-hmm. it became the internet, but yeah, we'll see. But yeah, I, I, I think we're definitely at one of those crossroads. So the crystal ball question kind of leads right into what I call my, the magic lamp or maybe the magic wand question. Mm-hmm. So if you had a magic wand or a magic, lamp and you could dictate or control something that is going to happen or maybe it's something right now that if there was one thing that you could use a magic wand on what would that be
1: hmm one thing <laughs> maybe this is you know a little peace love and but i i would um i would hope everybody sees the importance of art and of the expression of art cuz i feel like we're we lose that I mean, with this AI coming with you know just civil unrest or whatever it is, like technology in general of us, you know looking at social media, and I hope people can still see the importance of like music and performance and art and museums and expressing themselves through you know poetry or writing or all the arts, you know, whatever it is that that seems like it's a waste of time. You know, it's like, what's the, what's the point of living, you know, like what would be the point of me, my existence, if I couldn't listen to music, you know, that's, that's part of me. That's my DNA. And I hope everybody, like I would wish that upon everybody is to have something that they're passionate about and they love, you know, that, that lets them express themselves as well as, you know, allows them to receive that expression from others doing, you know, different types of art or expression. So maybe that's my answer. I don't know if that's a, that's just kind of where my head is right now in a a weird way. So
0: no, I I think that's a wonderful answer and uh, it kind of brings us, I think at a, at a good place to kind of wrap this up. I just want to let you know how much I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, sit and have this conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me.
0: As we wrap this up, I'm going to play some links to some of the things we've talked about in the show notes. So anyone that's listening that wants to go click on their those links, you can. Are there any other links? Do You have a website or other other places that you want to mention while we're here?
1: Yeah, I mean my I guess yeah my my website is wickwoodmusic.com. The my game company that I was talking about, my game audio company is Team Audio, which is at team a u d dot i o. So it spells Team Audio, but the it's not .com, it's .io. So. And then I'm on all the socials, but I don't really post there anymore. <laughs> but I'm on Instagram. Oh, it's under uh, Chris Rickwood, if, uh, just about any platforms you can find me. So,
0: Awesome. Well, it was great talking to you today. Thanks again so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris Rickwood. If you're interested in learning more about Chris and his work, check out the notes for this episode to find the links to the websites mentioned in our conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends and colleagues. Subscribing and leaving positive reviews are a huge help in boosting and promoting the podcast. In addition to this podcast, there are also links to my website, my YouTube channel, blog, social media handles, and our new Discord server in the episode notes. I hope you'll be on the lookout for the next episode of the podcast where I'll be having a conversation with the chair of the music department and music technology program at Georgia Tech, Dr. Jason Freeman. Dr. Freeman leads one of the most innovative and unique music technology programs in the country at Georgia Tech. We will talk about what led him to the convergence of music and technology in his career, the groundbreaking work taking place at Georgia Tech, and what the future may hold in the world of music and technology. Until then, this is Heath with the Music. Technology Teacher, teacher, teacher Network.
1: Teacher, Advocate, teacher,
0: support, teacher, inspire, teacher, create. Net, net,
1: teacher, network. Net, net, teacher, network. Net, network, teacher, network.
0: network, network. Music, music, music,
1: Technology. music, music. Technology. music